You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So a few episodes back, I know I made every single one of you jealous when I told you that one of my friends in the personal finance community had achieved a perfect credit score. Yep, a perfect credit score of 850. And I always like to say you are not your credit score, and I definitely believe that. But In Michelle Singletary's case, you might want to be. We are very, very fortunate to have her with us on the line today, and we're going to talk about her credit score, but we're going to talk about a lot more than that because in addition to maintaining her fabulous credit, Michelle is the syndicated columnist for The Washington Post on personal finance. Her award-winning column, The Color of Money, is carried in over 100 newspapers. She's also the author of the 21-Day Financial Fast, Your Path to Financial Peace and Freedom. And I love that phrase, financial peace. Michelle, thanks so much for being on the line and spending a little bit of time with us today. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank you for having me. It has been too long since we have seen each other. It has. I can't even believe it. (laughs) I know. I know. I saw your smiling face because I was watching Don't Tell my folks at the Today Show, but I actually tuned into Good Morning America, and I saw you doing a segment about Foolproof, that financial literacy program, and um, I was just like, man, I've got to call her. Oh, yeah. I love Foolproof. It's a great way for people to learn how to teach your kids about money. So, yeah, it was a great segment. We have to start with that score because, you know, perfect credit score, perfect SAT score. Spill all of your secrets, please. So you know what? It's so funny. I check my credit score really as a part of identity theft uh, because, you know, if your score drops, then there's something funky going on. Mm-hmm. So I you know, check it fairly regularly uh, and a little bit bragging rights because mine's always a little higher than my husband's. And so I'm checking it and I thought, well, that's a mistake. That just must be like the holding place that they have for scores. And then I checked it a couple places because a lot of your lenders now allow you to have your uh, FICO score. And it's an official FICO score, not the sort of consumer one that they um, had previously. And so I think it was like four other places. It was the same thing, you know, two, uh, three of my banks and then um, Discover's uh, uh, site for free credit scores. And they were all 850. And I have to tell you, I don't... <laughs> do anything special. I didn't like, there's some people who are like out there managing cards and closing stuff and not closing stuff to try to get to 850. Basically the secret is I pay all my bills on time, all the time. Uh, and that's, I learned that from my grandmother. Um, she was a fanatic about making sure her bills, not just on the due date. She wanted to get in it before the due date, just in case something happened. That's back when you used to mail stuff. So I pay everything before it's due. I'm like manic about it. And, you know, I had a mix of credit, but if I have a credit card, I don't like, use whatever the max is. And, you know, there's conventional wisdom that you don't use more than 30%, but 
Uh, studies show that those who have high in the 800s credit scores use on average about 7%, and I use about 1%. And that's overall and per month. So even in a month, if I'm going to make a big purchase, I still don't get anywhere near, like nowhere near like 10% or something like that. Because I just, that's money you got to pay every month. And we pay our bills off every single month. And that's really the recipe. And that's all I've done. You know, I think that utilization ratio, that 1% to 2% of your available credit that you're using, I think that was the secret sauce. I mean, that was the thing because I do everything that you do. I pay my bills on time, every time. I pay them early because I actually like to pay them when I get them because that makes me just feel like a calmer, happier human being. But I'm a little closer in terms of my utilization, a little higher in terms of my utilization. And I got to tell you, I don't have the bragging rights in my house. My husband has the bragging rights and I am, I'm close to 800, but I'm nowhere close to 850. Yeah, when I saw the 850, my husband's like like 832. I said, yeah, so hey, babe. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you're right. And what happens is we sort of think, and especially those folks who pay their bills off every month, that that's all that it takes. But you still want to look at per month what you're spending Um, for a couple reasons. You know, not just, let's just forget the whole credit score thing. Because really, like you said, you are not your credit score. And all a credit score shows is how you use debt. It says you're a good debtor. So I don't pay any attention to that. But if you keep your utilization down, um, it also means that you're not spending a lot on credit. And those who pay their bills off month, they so proudly beat their chest. Yeah, I paid off month. But you still could be overspending even though you're paying it off every month. And that's the key. So I, when I go to charge, I'm really saying, do you really need this? You, yeah, sure, you could pay it off. But do you really need that? Uh, and I'm just constantly talking to myself because we have three kids to put through college and we want to make sure that we put them through college and we are debt free. And so that's what sort of kept me on track. And the upside is I got this perfect credit score. Well, I read that you not only want to put your kids through college debt free, but you, you would put them through grad school debt free. I mean, that is that is ambitious. I I mean, I've been a journalist a very long time. We do good work, but, you know, not not the highest paying profession on the planet. So how are you doing this? You're absolutely right. As I said, it, people are like, no, I didn't come into any money. I didn't inherit any money. <laughs> my husband works for the government. We have regular wage jobs. But here's the, here's my reasoning, because I know that there's, you know, and you have to decide for yourselves, right? Because so this is my philosophy on my children. We know that they need, most of them need a college education. We also know that the undergraduate degree has been devalued. So for a lot of careers, you actually need a graduate degree. And two of my kids want to go into higher education, not higher education, education. One wants to be um, a social worker working with children and the other wants to be a special ed that they have to get masters. Mm -hmm. And so knowing this, but also knowing that none of my children had full-time jobs while they were children. And so all those years, their children, they're not saving up for college or grad school. So that means that for them to afford college and grad school, 
if we don't say they have to take out loans. And so when they were little wee people, my husband and I decided that we were going to give this to them, this freedom, this financial freedom. And so we lived way below our means when all of our peers were getting big cars and luxury cars and Lexus and BMWs. And, you know, you walk into their house, it looks like a museum. You know, we probably <laughs> had couches for like 10, 15 years, you know, turn over the cushions and be okay. <laughs> and so we wanted to gift them that. And we also did didn't want them to worry about that graduate degree, which when you look at the outstanding student loan debt, you know, it's like what, almost 1.4 trillion. Yeah. A lot of that is graduate debt. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure that they weren't in there, particularly the two that decided that they wanted to go into fields that um, not a lot of people go into because you don't make a lot of money. And so we just bunkered down, hunkered down, and every month religiously put money away whenever I got extra money. Like I do books, like you do books. When I got my advance and and my book money, it all went to the college fund. Like we didn't get a car. I didn't get a fur. I didn't get jewelry. I didn't get anything. I just put all of it. And I'm, I'm being honest, just like just about all of it into their college funds um, for the first one. Uh, and then just for 18 years, just tossing it in there. Uh, and then between that and they're going to get, um, they got AP credit. So mm-hmm. all of my kids started off college or will start off the last one with about a semester or two worth of credits. Uh, so that knocks almost a year off in terms of, and that's real money. That's huge. And then they all get scholarships. Because um, they're and, brilliant. Well, you know, who's their mom? No, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> um, but now my son didn't get scholarship. He has autism. And so he didn't get a lot of money or any money. But that's okay because we save for him. We save for them for the full ride without any scholarship money. So the, especially the girls, with the girls getting scholarship money, that helped us have enough um, for grad school. And then we saved outside. We we saved in 529 plans and we saved outside of 529 plans as well um, and an index growth fund. Uh, and between those two, we got them covered right through grad school. And for us, that's the legacy that we wanted to leave. And it's yeah, all about priorities, right? It, I mean, I hear you talking and, and what you're saying is you prioritize their education. This was the decision that you and your husband made. You made it early, which was a blessing. And you made it and then you you stuck with it. How did you balance it, though, with saving for your own retirement? I mean, I'm sure you've given the same advice that I've given, which is that you can't sabotage retirement because of college. Well, you know, and again, it's all about starting early and knowing what you want. And my husband and I were very determined about that. And so we saved for them and it did not impact our retirement in the least bit. Um, we you know, put money in out in my case, 401k, his case, the thrift savings plan. We didn't do the max, which is interesting because people keep telling me max out. Well, we couldn't do the max because we were also saving for college, but we were a little bit maybe aggressive in terms of what we put our money in. Not initially. Initially, we were crazy conservative. It was really ridiculous. And then we kind of got smart about it and took, you know, probably a little bit more, more risk than some, but still very diversified and just, again, plotting away money. Now, that the way you can do both is that you've got to cut your lifestyle in other areas. You know, we keep our cars until we're on a first name basis with the local tow truck drivers. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't have a lot of clothes. We don't go shy. I don't, I mean, myself and my, and my kids, I'm not kidding you. We might go to the mall. If it's three times a year, that's probably an exaggeration. Um, we don't use shopping as a form of entertainment. 
Uh, in fact, when we go to the movies, we purposely select a movie theater that is not connected to a mall so that you're not walking through tempted to buy. Uh, and the thing that we splurge on, we do take family vacations every year, two weeks at a nice five-star kind of place, but mm-hmm. everything else during the year, it's gone. We don't care. Wow. Well, I want to talk a little bit about how you do this if you're getting a late start. And also, if you are having a little bit of trouble with that spending that's that's getting in the way of saving for your goals. But before we do that, just a reminder that conversations like these are proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We are working together to ensure all women are in the financial front seat when it comes to our health. Why? Because women are in the driver's seat in so many aspects of our lives. We manage our careers and our families and more. And yet, when it comes to making decisions about money, too many women just delegate to someone else. One thing is really clear. When it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, what your goals are. As Michelle is saying, those goals are really important. And by having an annual financial checkup, you can learn more about all of that at fidelity.com slash front seat. We're talking with Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. So if you are a parent listening and you are now holding your stomach because you didn't start early. You didn't start early enough for college. You didn't start early enough for retirement. What do you do now? So you don't panic. uh, And don't let our conversations make you feel, I would never want anyone to feel guilty that I did this in my starting in my 20s. Well, you know, I had a grandmother who taught me a lot of this stuff. She didn't invest, but she was great with her money. So I had a head start on you from someone who wanted to make sure I was a good money manager. But if you decide you wake up and you think, oh Lord. So now you have to manage both your expectations and your child's expectations. We know that college is important, but they don't have to go like everybody else goes. Like, let's just say I didn't do what I did. My kids would not have gone out of state I mean, they all went in state, but they wouldn't go out of state. They would commute. They'd probably go to the two-year community college first, get all those you know requirements out of the way, and then transfer to the four-year university. And so there are ways to do this without the full, you know, go stay in a room, room and board, because room and board is about 50% of what you pay now. And you're borrowing for that. For me, that's like borrowing to rent an apartment. We would never tell people to borrow money to pay their rent. Uh, And so you have to say, you know what, they're still going to get a good college education, but they're not going to do it the traditional way. And that's okay. You have to be okay with it and you have to make your kids okay with it. Don't put the decision in their hands. They're 18 or 17 years old. You know best. I, I work with my husband at our church and we run a financial program all year long. And, and one of the top things that are weighing people down at all ages, right up until their retirement is student loan debt. Mm -hmm. And I tell them time and time again, if you get to that point and you don't have enough, then you sit down with your child or you should have been sitting there all along. But let's say you did. You said, honey, mom and dad or mom, mom or just dad, we just didn't have it or we didn't know what we should have done. So let's look at what we can do in terms of getting you the college. But you may not have the experience that say some of your friends are going to have. Speaking of strategies, I want to just touch in the last few minutes that we have on your financial fast. Tell us about this 21-day jumpstart to getting out of debt. 
Oh, I love this fast. It is crazy hard, but it will smack you in the face. Now, listen, you know, this is not one of those sort of microwave solutions. You know, people come up with these things and they haven't really tried it. My husband and I tried this at our church. And for 21 days, you can't spend on anything that is not a necessity. And you can't use credit and you can't use your debit card. So you basically are shutting yourself down for 21 days. You can't go shopping, can't eat out, can't get your hair done, no nails, um, no eating out, it's all of that. And the idea is that you've got to try to reboot what your money means to you because lots of people are spending and it's not where they really truly want to spend their money. They say they want to save for retirement or save for the kids' college. But when you look at their how they spend, they're eating out, they're buying cars, they're buying clothes. So we just want to like just shut it all down. Just shut out all the consumer noise and just say, and I, this is how I do it. When I close my eyes for the last time, I want to look back at the money that I earned and leave a legacy. And that won't be cars or clothes or maybe even vacations. It will be that I sent all three of my kids to college debt free, that I tied to my church, meaning I gave 10% of my income to my church, that I saved enough for my retirement that I didn't, I wasn't a burden on my children. I gave to my community. So that's what I want to do. And if you do that, if you shut down all the consumer messages to buy, 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 you can then laser focus on what is important to you and then cut out everything else. You are getting in touch with your values, and it sounds like you have it licked. Absolutely. Michelle, it's always such an amazing time talking to you. Thank you so much, and please come back. I would love to. And we will be right back with Mailbag. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Kelly Hultgren, our producer. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. Uh, That was an interesting conversation. You know, I'm always amazed, even at people in the personal finance space who had their priorities, their act together so young. It goes back to your idea of being born a saver or being born a spender, I think. I mean, clearly she was born a saver Mm -hmm. and she married a saver, right? And those are two things (laughs) that have to happen in order for those priorities to line up. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mother taught me. I was a really, really good saver as a child. I saved my babysitting money. I had a lot of money socked away from my jobs because I had a lot of different jobs before I went off to college. After college, I went through a period where I was a disaster, right? I I just, I didn't have goals. I Mm -hmm. didn't have priorities. And she very, very clearly got the message and didn't divert Well, it sounds like she's always been so focused on her values when it comes to her money. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so natural to steer away from that or not be so in touch with them. And we talk about that a lot on the show. And I forget your story of your in your 20s when you were spending more. What was the turning point again of when you finally, you know, cut off the fancy gym membership, didn't dine out as much? Um. Boy, well, at one point, I I sort of had it out. I didn't have it out. I mean, that sounds terrible. But I was <laughs> I was carrying a big chunk of credit card debt, mm-hmm. and um, my roommate at the time, who was a friend of mine from college, worked at Citibank, and she made a lot more money than I did. Um, 
And she got a look at my credit card bill, and she was like, this is insane, Mm -hmm. and really read me the riot act. And at the same time, I was like a lot of our listeners who have some savings in the bank Mm -hmm. but don't want to move that money and use it to pay off a high interest rate credit card even though they're not earning anything much Mm -hmm. on those savings because it feels really safe to have money in the bank. And she was like, no, we are going to write a check. We are going to pay this off. And then you are going to go on a budget. And she got me flipped and turned in the right direction. It's taking a leap of faith when you touch your savings in a big way. And I recently did that with my new apartment because the building asked for three months of security up front. And that was a lot of money. Yeah. It was a really tough decision. And the rest of the Her Money team can attest to my emotional and mental state in the office the day we were going after the apartment and the sticker shock of how much money it was going to be up front. And I was not in a good place. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Although, because you won't have to pay, oh, you will still have to pay rent. Yeah. It is the security security deposit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, don't have a party and kick a hole in the wall. (laughs) What do we have from Mailbag this week? Our first question is from Adriana. I'm writing to you because I, I guess we, my husband and I just want to calm ourselves down regarding the amount of debt my daughter is about to enter to follow her dream of becoming a medical doctor. She graduated debt-free from Florida State University with a biology major, and by the time she finishes med school, she is looking to be in debt for at least 276000 We are freaking out. We have followed your recommendations. She is just borrowing from federal loans, and I guess when she finishes college in four years, she will have to consider working in a public hospital, et cetera, et cetera. If there is anything you could say to us to help calm us, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, I know it's a lot of debt. I know. It really – it is a lot of debt. Graduate school these days is is really expensive. But you've done it all right. And so I think that's what you can hold on to. She has done it all right. I'm sure that she looked for scholarships and grants. If she hasn't, she can continue to do that. They are available for graduate school. And as she comes out, this idea of working in a public hospital – or a place where she may qualify for public service loan forgiveness after 10 years of paying on these debts with an income-based repayment program that will lower her payments is a really, really good way to go. The alternative is that if she decides that she is going to become a doctor with an extremely high potential income, Maybe she decides she wants to be a plastic surgeon or an anesthesiologist or something else where the salary is high coming out of the gate. You want to weigh those numbers against the public hospital loan forgiveness versus the high salary. I'll just pay what I owe and it won't be such a big deal. If she comes out and she's earning a whopping salary to begin with, the student loan payments won't be as onerous and she will be able to handle them. But it sounds like you raised her right. She did everything she needed to do. I I, I think going for your dream is totally admirable and um, congratulations to you and to her. Yes, good luck and thank you for writing in. Now one from someone who would like to remain anonymous. No problem. No problem ever. I'm asking this question for a coworker. 
We are both in education. She will be retiring in the next three to four years, and her pension will be more than enough to cover her living expenses. She has over 500000 in a 403B pre-tax that is currently with a company that puts 403B payroll contributions into an annuity, then invests it. She is paying extra fees that I feel are unnecessary for her situation. We are considering moving the money once she retires and has a qualified event. What type of fund would you recommend she invests in? Also, I recommend she start contributing to a Roth for any unexpected expenses in retirement. And she has a really good friend. She does have a really good friend. The Roth is a really good idea. Mm -hmm. If you can make extra contributions, you make extra contributions because there may be times at life when you can't. And because I don't know the details of this specific plan, I'm going to pull out the financial advisor card. When you retire, anytime you're talking about a huge sum of money here, a half a million dollars, and this is the time in your life where you need to look at the array of options and you need to examine them with somebody who can take a look not just at your investments, but at everything else going on in your life. What's your cost of housing? How are you set for health care? Have you thought about long-term care? What kind of lifestyle do you expect to live? All of those factors are determinants in how the money should be invested and in the question of how much should be annuitized. You, you talk about annuities, and annuities are converting a sum of money that you've got in your retirement, in this case, into a paycheck that will last the rest of your life. I like the idea of that, particularly to cover your fixed costs, but you need to know what those fixed costs are. So sit down with a comprehensive, holistic financial advisor who can look at everything before you make the call. Okay. Thank you, good friend. And we'll do one more from Anna. I'm wondering if you could help me find legitimate companies that let you work from home. Thanks for the question, Anna. I know this is something that's on a lot of people's minds. So I'm going to point you in the direction of a website called The Penny Hoarder, mm -hmm. which specializes in work-from-home jobs. They have legitimate work-from-home jobs on their website every single day, and they even have a WFH tab on their website so you can find those things. But Hattie on our team did some research especially for you, and you should know that there are a lot of companies who have legitimate work-from-home options, including Adobe, American Express, HSN, Dell, Citizens Bank, QVC, Gap, even Amazon have remote job options that you can look into. So you are no longer talking about a world where you are stuffing envelopes mm -hmm. or some other scam job. There is real stuff out there, and good luck with that. Yeah, a close girlfriend of mine works for Microsoft, and she's able to work from home. That's and great. So I can back that one up. And, and if you decide to work from home, mm -hmm. then you should just this is advice from me because I worked from home for a long time. Sometimes you miss your friends. And so schedule a little bit of time every single day where you know you're going to see another human being. Oh, that's really important. And shout out to Kyle Taylor. Of the Penny Hoarder. Of Penny Hoarder. He's been on our show before. I can't remember the episode number, but it was a really good show. It was a really good show. So check that out as well. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. And now it is time for our weekly Thrive segment. Millennials have gotten a reputation for being terrible at buying houses, driving, and 
O about 50 other things, and now we learn they are also terrible at taking vacations. That's so, so sad. According to a LinkedIn survey, millennials are neglecting to take vacation days because they're afraid of falling behind at work. But that's not the only fear holding them back from a few days in the sun or on the slopes or whatever your pleasure happens to be. Of the millennials who responded to this poll, 16% said they didn't ask for days off because they were just too nervous to ask. A different survey published last year found that millennial women were the least likely in the workplace to ask for time off because of guilt, fear, and work martyr habits. Here's the thing. Not taking a vacation may actually hurt your career. Those people who do travel frequently, who use their vacation days, they are more likely to get a raise, get a bonus, or both than those who don't. In fact, those people who didn't take vacation days were five percentage points less likely to report a raise or a bonus in the last few years. So as we head into the fourth quarter here, take some time off. You will be better for it, and your chances of burning out and not getting a raise will fade away like a mist over the morning bay. Just visualize that and it'll get you going. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Her Money. Thank you to Michelle Singletary for the wonderful conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We'd like to thank our wonderful sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. And our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with Cindy Eckert, CEO of Sprout Pharmaceuticals. We'll talk soon.